everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around, drinking coffee, and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are David Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 107, Adventures in Oz. This is exciting for me, not just because I love pimping myself, but I'm going to introduce you guys to the team that has been behind the new Adventures in Oz Kickstarter. And that's David Speakman of Double Critical and Aaron Chung of Double Critical. <laughs> Welcome, guys. Thank you very much. David has been with us before. I'm sure some of you remembered was when we were talking about, is your story, strictly speaking, legal? Which is always good when you're using other people's intellectual property and creating a world. And to a certain extent, that is a fantastic segue of what we have done here. David came to me and said, hey, I've got this great idea. And me and Aaron have been kicking it around talking about using the Oz books, which are going out of copyright. So tell us where this seed idea came from. So basically, uh, we were we um, at Double Critical were thinking about ways that we could create worlds that could appeal basically to the to large segments of the population. And one of the things that is easy to do is uh, mine public domain material, which is something we talked about in an earlier podcast, like you said. And so I had worked with you in the past through fanzine type stuff, and you had written for me in the past, and I knew that I liked your writing. And so I I just kind of kicked the idea around with you, and lo and behold, it turned out you you are a... Um, an Oz person from way back from your childhood. Just old Oz fan from being 10 years old. Man. Right. And so Aaron also is a big Oz person. And um, from working with Aaron, Aaron is very similar to you. It's like um, you know, those uh, TV and movies where people are in New York City and they turn on the fire hydrants. It's like both of you have this creativity of a fire hydrant. It's like you, you turn it on, you have to stand back because both of you have like these ideas that come flying out of your brains which is amazing to work with. And so I just thought uh, that this could be a dream team to work with both you um, for on the Oz side, and Aaron's a big Oz person too, and then Aaron with his creativity in gaming. I just thought this would be perfect to adapt Oz to Dungeons & Dragons style gaming. And um, so we, we tried to figure out how we would do that. Yeah, well, it, the truth is Aaron and I are often mistaken for each other walking along the street too, so... <laughs> Aaron, how did, how did you fall for Oz? Were you an Oz man too? Yeah, so I grew up on the Oz books. You know, I was a big library nerd in high school and middle school. And Oz, I started off actually with TSR. So I was reading Dragonland and I expanded to bigger fantasy and went back and read classics. And that included the Oz series. And uh, I always liked Oz. Uh, I never thought that there's been like a really good medium that's continued on the Oz legacy. Uh, there's just so much rich storytelling and characters and world building that, uh, you know, the Frank made. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about tapping into this and the writing has been so fun. I really wanted to share with the readers. We had an interesting process at the very beginning when, when we first all sat down and talked about this and because you know, people say creative collaboration, and then it's kind of a buzz phrase. I want to say there were some really important decisions that we sat and made of saying, we love Frank, and we love Oz. And in some ways, the 1920s, we were all still sexist and racist as hell. And so <laughs> it has been a process. And, and talk to me for you guys, your thoughts about what we wanted to do to say, 
we want to be pure Oz in the way that he wrote it. You know, we don't want to make it grim dark. We don't want to make a scarecrow with his brains that zip open, you know, not to quote anybody else, but we wanted to be faithful, but we also wanted to be modern. Well, the way I view it is, uh, and we've talked about this in the past personally, was I really view it as we're translating it from a different language almost, because this is a hunt. The first book was 121 years ago, actually 122, because he actually wrote it in 1899. So the mindset, the language use, um, what was acceptable, what was, it was not acceptable, gender roles, race um, identity, completely different 120 some years ago than it is today. And like you too, I read some of the Oz books, not all of them when I was a kid. And my memories are a lot better than reality going back and reading it again, because there are some terms that he uses that are either blatantly sexist in 2021 speak, or at least racially insensitive, if not racist. And that's just really the mindset of the day, the, uh, the straight white male gaze, if you want to think of it that way. He's really writing the viewpoint that the default is a Christian, heterosexual, male, white man. And if you're not that, then you're not included in the vision. And that was really something that most writers were writing from at that time period. And it just does not translate well into 2021. And so our thought was to bring Baum's ideals to 2021 and get rid of the stuff that's going to be triggering people so that they don't necessarily pay attention to the story. They're more... Uh, they may be more turned off by some of the um, the uses that could be racially or um, gender insensitive. And in doing that, I think we really hit our stride. Yeah, I mean, a good example that we that we actually spent a couple sessions discussing was we really wanted the porcelain race in from Baum's world inside our uh, inside our book, uh, but you know, Baum called them Chinamen, or <laughs> because it's a euphemism or a play on words that they're made of uh, porcelain china, but it's a little derogatory now. Um, and so obviously we couldn't use, or we didn't feel comfortable using the China, China man or China woman name for the race. So we were thinking, and I think David is the one who came up with it, but uh, porcelain china is made out of clay and it's called Kaolin. So we ended up going with the racial name Kaolin instead. And that's one example of how, uh, you know, we've done a translation where we kept the core of what Frank was trying to do and then uh, brought it into, uh, you know, modern day sensibilities. Because no one uses that term anymore because it's, it's offensive. <laughs> yeah. I love that you did that. I can't wait to write a Kowloon monk into a story. They were very interesting. It's very interesting. It's just that when, once we got rid of the racial baggage of the name, it really opened up a lot of possibilities. And, and I found personally for myself, it took the emphasis more on the character rather than their categorization. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this in um, like all, all the, going back to the copyright stuff a little bit, but also um, the racism and sexism and so forth. And I was thinking kind of comparing and contrasting, if you will, um, uh, bomb with um, H.P. Lovecraft, who was very much a racist. And, and, you know, there are all some parallels, uh, his, his books, you know, his, his monsters, his mythos has, have become very popular, but um, in all the uh, media that uh, portray that, and then there's a couple of games too, right? Uh, most notably Chaosium. Either the racism is 
kind of just elided or ignored or in in some of the media it's embraced because you know Lovecraft <laughs> country for instance for those that, that have watched well, it. right and yeah. that addressed it kind of and, and made the made a parallel between the racism and the the monsters and, and kind of made it allegorical which was cool in the in the role-playing game there now interestingly are are some um, writers who are doing uh, kind of anti-racist things there's there is a, a an adventure module out there where the uh, the action takes place in Harlem, and the it, it um, points up the racism and uh, um, gives you a framework for for role playing, you know, um, non white characters or and and or um, dealing with the racism in game rather than just ignoring it. So I mean, it is it is becoming a thing. Uh, but it's good that we could at least, I enjoyed, and I thought it was the fun part of taking Fairyland and saying, it's it's a fairy land. It's not like Feywild or any of the others that have been created because Oz did create his very own world in which all of these things can exist. And I loved the debates we went through of where we're setting. Is this overlaid and apart or is this completely separated? And because... Baum was not specific sometimes, and indeed, for those that are very pedantic, such as me and like Dave, any Dave, all Daves are pedantic, sorry, Davids, but to to decide and say, okay, if he said it's here and it's here, you can get across the deadly desert. No, you can't, but you can, to figure out in all those changing lens spread, what did we want to be true and real? And that's fun. Well, one of the things, one of the issues that we really ran into was a um, requirement that this is going to be a game that is going to be compatible with fifth, with fifth edition gaming, yeah. and uh, which means that we need to make it plug and play. Let somebody was let's say somebody was coming out of some normal um, setting that's in Dungeons and Dragons and they just want to visit Oz. So we need to figure out how to get somebody just to take it like a day visit or a side quest where they somehow get into Oz and then go back to their normal game. So we need, needed to make it be that way too. And so one of the things that we needed to address was, is Oz part of Earth? Is it part of a separate plane? Is it part of the multiverse that is part of the greater Dungeons and Dragons or even uh, Pathfinder universes? Is this something that people can find a way into, even if they're not part of Oz specific or they don't want to be on Earth? And that was really an interesting process. When I first was, you said, let's write a story and see if we can figure this out. The first story, I'll be honest, was from a point of view of... uh, Standard fifth edition, I'm a thief, I'm a rogue. Mm -hmm. Something cool. I I want these cool mechanical things which are coming from this place called Ev. And clearly here's the warehouse. So I'm just going to, you know, without giving too much away, I am going to find this place because I can profit, which really that's what adventuring is, is how do we maximize profit and get cool magical items, right? Mm -hmm. I think one of the hard things too, from um, kind of a game design standpoint was you know, Oz, typically, everyone is basically immortal in Oz. And because it's written as a children's allegory or a children's story, you know, there's not a lot of death or dying, you know, the wicked witch is outstanding. And so that kind of setting or world isn't fun for players if you can't just have, like, agency to make decisions on how you can affect the world. So if you can't affect the world, you know, it's not fun for a player. So we had to set a, sort of, you know, do a translation to kind of bring, you know, Bomb's world into more of a fantasy setting where it can be changed by the players. 
And I think I I had struggled with some of that. Exactly. That was a decision that we had to make that I think one of the comments in the Kickstarter came out is what do you do? And everybody, nobody ever dies in Oz. I'm like, you know, that is a myth of some of the later ideas. It was one of the ways that Baum changed his mind. And for instance, he had these vegetable people that all die within a certain amount of time. And then you had the blueskins that live precisely this number of years and then just drop dead. And he had that simultaneously while saying later, but nobody dies here. So it, it was one of the eternal contradictions that we had to look at. And that's agreed. That's why we kind of went on the look. What Lurleen set up is that we don't want all of these groups just randomly killing each other. And we can all exist and it's not all perfectly peaceful, but when it gets out of hand, somebody's going to step in. Right. So, and then, uh, another thing that uh, Bond did in his work was he had a lot of absolutes, but then again, like there were, there were inconsistencies. Just going back to the depth in the, the, the original book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, you had uh, like the wildcat killed, cut in half, basically beheaded, dead in, in detail. Then, then there's other people who can't die in other books. And then it was just so inconsistent that we just decided to go with the role-playing default is that there's always a danger of death and dismemberment, but in Oz, some creatures are immortal, but you probably aren't. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that makes it more interesting for a character because if there's no risk, then the, then the rewards just aren't that good. And David Welsh wrote one of the opening adventures that I think people can get as part of the Kickstarter, the, the Cider Horse Rules, which is not just punny, but it was fun. We renamed that. It wasn't his original name, but I just could not resist. <laughs> What'd you rename so I apologize to you, Dave, for that. <laughs> That's okay, as long as the cider horse is still in there. Oh, yeah. um, one of the things I like about the the universe is, I mean, because it was a kid's book, it was um, fairly whimsical, and you're 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 taking that whimsy and you're you're sort of updating it as you've already described for um, uh, modern sensibilities, but also you're kind of expanding it to. Um, you know, adults who are going to be playing this game. So it's not just all um, silliness that a, a, a 10 year old kid would love. It's, it's um, you want to put in jokes and references and things that um, the adults are going to get. Um, so you, you really, you really have kind of a, a layered world where um, you can enjoy it at the silly kid level, but you can also enjoy it um from a from the standpoint of oh you know this is a this is a wink to some the nerd television series or this is a uh, you know a nod to um, some other adult thing. Yeah, I really like I really like taking the grown up angle because uh, I would I'm, I'm suggesting that because these books are so expensive that very few children are going to be buying these. So we really need to keep in mind who our um, clientele is, and they're basically grown ups who either have fond memories of or want to know more about Oz. And so we really need to take that viewpoint. I think we've, I hope we have accomplished that. I know um, both, um, actually all three of you, Jeannie, Aaron, and Dave, you've all hit that. I just hope that I haven't ruined what you guys created in editing it together. (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, there was somebody else who had a comment that they were really looking forward to running an Oz game for their kids because maybe they're, I don't know if their kids had read all the books or hadn't read all the books, but they have this beautiful memory of Oz. And like, I like role-playing games. I have children now because many of us, when we first read it, are now the age of having children. And Oz has the ability to be, you know, if you have a hardened group of adult murder hobos 
sure, we have all the darkness that get it. But if you wanted to play something lighter and fun with kids, there's there's over a hundred different monsters that we created and, and just pulled straight out of the books. A couple originals, but mostly creatures that were in there. And a lot of them are friendly or irascible or grumpy or but if we remember Oz, Dorothy talked her way out of things. And maybe there's room for murder hobos that just want to attack and kill everything and loot the stuff. But there's also a lot of room for, hey, how come you're chasing those fish? Or why does the fairy beaver want us to do that? That's weird. It's a role-playing game. Role-playing game. It's role-playing. <laughs> well, yeah, that, yeah, you know, I, that's one of the other uh, things that this checked off on our list is because one of the one of the three partners that started Double Critical is a dad who's got some kids who are just almost at the age where they can play role-playing games And when we first started. And he was real, and he's a big um, role-player himself. He wanted to, and he was lamenting one time about how he couldn't play games with his kids because either they're too advanced or the storylines just really don't gel with kids' minds. And uh, I really think that, um, that, that was kind of in the back of our minds when we when we were thinking about Oz too. Was that this is something that parents had the option of also including their kids in if they wanted to, but they can turn that off and then they can turn it into a, a normal, just regular RPG campaign setting also for adults. For yeah. Well, just uh, we also actually um, did run a couple sessions with children uh, to see how they liked it, and um, the thing that I learned from running for you know kids under the age of, you know, under the age of 12 is that they don't really pay attention to the mechanics of the game and they definitely are more heavy role players. So, you know, looking at that, uh, we made sure to design, you know, monsters that aren't just stat blocks and they kind of have abilities or ways that they can interact with players that's outside of combat. And so, you know, I like that Oz's world, you know, the Oz world helps that because, you know, like, you know, Jeannie said, uh, Dorothy talked her way out of most situations, actually. <laughs> she did. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about the the idea that kids would be more into the role-playing than the, the game mechanics, but it makes sense. If you listen to the way kids play, everything's kind of absolute, and um, it's more about... But kids also have a running story going pretty much at all times in their head. You know, even from from the earliest, the floor is made of lava. I, I just can't explain it, but there it is, lava. Okay. <laughs> we do and then every other kid just immediately picks up on it without having to explain. And um, th- that's that's what I think is a beauty of this is that that ability that some of us had as kids to just enter the land of make-believe and role-playing. We Some of us age out of it, and then those of us in this group here have not thankfully but uh but uh maybe we can uh keep that imagination and that spark of um of um, genius that all kids are born with uh, keep that alive a little bit longer through role playing and i, and I hopefully this book can introduce uh, more uh, kids um, through their parents and through other you know uh, or maybe aunts and uncles of, of how role playing works and how it actually um, increases your ability like one thing that Jeannie and i were talking about one time earlier is how it increases um, children's ability to empathize and care about others and think outside of their own head. Yeah, I, I think it does. I think you can, the fact that you can play with different alignments and work with different alignments, and there's there's a lot of group negotiation that I think people learn if they've never played role-playing games, maybe they've had less of an opportunity. So 
Some of the things that surprised me, though, about when we started really digging into the source material and like, okay, we pulled, we culled through the books and pulled out a list of every monster and I had to go and look at the reference of where are they talked about, are they described, because we, we want to be as true as we can to the real books, was sometimes they didn't really have a story or a logic behind them. And or a description. They didn't, he didn't even describe uh, some of these things. He just said, <laughs> it exists. And then, um, and then they get, and they dispatch it, and they move along. And it's usually, and sometimes it's only one creature. And we're like, well, that's not. We can't do that. We need to have a bunch of these. So this is role playing. For instance, um, is the, the giraffe creature that only existed once to get them across a cavern. We decided to make that into a whole species, and so we, so we had to translate it that way because he had these lots of one offs. And another thing he never did was any character development, whether it was a beast or or his main characters. And so that's something that we're used to in the 21st century that they did not do in the late 19th century when um, he was learning to write. And so uh, that was another translation that we had to hit. I kind of have a love-hate with that, actually, because I love it because... Well, I hate it because it is difficult. We don't have a lot of description and we have to make it up ourselves. But I also love it because that minimal storytelling allows people to have a much bigger kind of imagination. Uh, a good example that I like to use for, for this kind of storytelling is from Empire Strikes Back from Star Wars. What, what's the most popular character from that movie besides like the main, you know, you know, the, the Skywalkers and, and, you know, Vader? It's Boba Fett, right? And he literally, he didn't really do much. He didn't even talk. And he became like one of the most popular characters. And they didn't really give him backstory or anything. He was just like this bounty hunter, but he became so popular and you know, the Star Wars culture. And then they eventually, you know, when they turned out more media, they gave him a backstory and, and he elongated his story. But like his first scene, he was just like this bounty hunter and then he did his thing and then, but he became so, so popular. I kind of like that minimal storytelling that allows people to have more imagination. Yeah, I was, I was going to say something similar. I, I completely agree with that. Um, and I think you've kind of done a balancing act in putting the, the game together or the, the, the world backstory, backstory together, because you want to leave some things open. Um, but you also want to flesh it out enough that people don't have to do the world building themselves. I like motivation in a, in a lot of ways. That's my, maybe too many of the jokes of, well, what's my motivation? I wondered, <laughs> and I'm, I have to do this part. So for me, that was like, why, why was the Gnome King always angry? Why was Quark's Oh, I got to say Quox. Quox is the blue dragon. We all remember Polychrome can call him and he's useful. But when I started comparing it against D&D, like, you know, blue dragons are actually pretty darn bitchy in D&D. So why is he pale blue and why is he helpful? And yet he's still a little bit snarky and coming up with the story of like, ah, you know, he mouthed off to the original dragon because there is an original dragon in the Baum story. So maybe he's under a curse and having to learn things and go through his own lesson. And we don't need to go into details of what it was or why, et cetera, but just a little bit of the, yep, yep, everybody, you never know who's fighting a battle or who's got a curse or who's under a spell. And I think that is what can make it fun to just say, there is one. We're not going to give you details. A GM can come up with the reasons if somebody wants to look into it. But just to remind all of the players of runnings of how many stories are out there that each animal they run into could have a story. Or, you know, you could just stomp in and murder it. But 
for the kids that want to ask questions. I think it's good to have just a hint of, but why? Maybe I'm still three years old and saying, but why? One of the things that you were brought up as like um, earlier is that there is some original content that we added. And um, we did it for a couple of reasons. Some of it was that uh, we needed to balance some things because uh, there's a lot of good goody two-shoes stuff in Oz, which we wanted to keep almost all of it if we could, if we could fit it in the book. But we need, like like we alluded to earlier, like we just blatantly said earlier, um, we needed to add some sense of danger and risk. And so we really pumped up some characters. We added some evil characters. Um, oh, one thing I did add, because I was when I was researching on Bomb, he had some very unfortunate viewpoints of Native Americans. And so I actually reached into my own personal history I, we put in this character. We put in this monster called the Busco Beast, and this comes from a little town that I grew up in. That has um, a there's a cryptid there, this giant lake monster turtle, but it really has its origins in the local Native American tribe, the Miami Indians, where they used to call a great turtle spirit that could take them and escort them out to good fishing grounds. And so I actually, um, in my little um, way to protest against Bond's um, Native American. Uh, viewpoints from the early 1900s and late 1800s, I included this myth as a, as a representation that I thought of like bringing in some, a way that uh, Native American culture changed my life. So I wanted to help pass it on to uh, Oz readers. But, you know, things like that. Um, when, we, when we added things, it was, it was very thoughtful. And you can feel free to leave it out if you don't want to, if you're an Oz purist. Or like one of the curses. We had a long discussion on the magic nature of curses and magical curses in particular, the flutter budgets curse. Because when you read about it in the Oz books, the flutter budgets, um, oh my gosh, they start worrying about everything, which when you think about it, this is perfect. There's fighting trees of Oz. There's also trees that grow muskets. So if you were a paranoid or you had anxiety and paranoia and delusion, you might be the, oh, God, the trees are going to grow guns and start shooting and sons never leave the house. And mental health is something that you have to decide, do I want to address it or do I not? So we put curses in there and said, look, these are optional, but they could be a lot of fun because if you had this curse and we're paranoid about magic and all of the contradictory, unreal, difficult things of a fairyland how would you deal with this and how would you cure it? And anything can be a way to spark a quest, really. Yeah. And I like that one because it it leads to um, some good role-playing opportunities as opposed to just, oh, let's roll some dice and figure out you know, whatever. So um, that, that appeals to me because I'm more into the role-playing aspects of the, the game. So was there anything that surprised you guys? I mean, Aaron and Dave were the... Um, David Welsh and Aaron Chung were the two major writers of adventures, of, of doing a couple, parsing it out. Aaron, you've been running the uh, role-playing. Is there anything that surprised you in all of this? Mm, for me, I think the most surprising thing was um, when I had to write down game mechanics into kind of the lingo, how unnatural it felt when I was writing it. Um, cause there's a certain logical progression on how kind of, you know, these kind of role-playing books are written and, um, in terms of like the mechanical abilities, it, it doesn't roll off the tongue. It's designed to be read so that it can't be misinterpreted. And so writing in that way was unnatural for me. It took me a bit. Uh, that surprised me because, you know, 
when I, when I play these games and I read them and they make sense, but then when I go getting around to actually writing it out, um, it's a lot harder. Yeah. For me, the surprising thing was, um, well, I didn't do any of the um, play testing of, of my module, but um, I got feedback right from you guys. And it was like, and, and I shouldn't have been surprised, but, um, <laughs> but the, the, the players that did the, the play testing would just think of something completely that I just had completely missed or that I hadn't considered. And of course, players do that stuff all the time. They're, they're, um, they're always doing something. They're, they're always going off script. And um, so, I mean, if I had to do it again, I, the, the original, the uh, um, adventure that I wrote was kind of open-ended and more of a world setting than a, than a um, lead you by the nose kind of uh, station by station adventure. Um I thought about it at the time that that might not, that that might be a little more difficult to play, but then I was like, well, I just like this idea so much. I'm going to do it anyway. But uh, I mean, that makes it harder too. Right. And then you, then you get players who um, are going to do surprising things and and you're actually kind of asking for it at that point. (laughs) So I I think the two biggest lies that anybody ever told themselves in programming or game designer is exactly the same. It's when you say to yourself and then the players will X. Mm-hmm. Whatever X happened to be, the minute you assume that's what people are going to do, yep, nope, they're going to surprise you. Right. Well, well to, be, yep. to be fair to Dave, um, also when we tell people they're playtesting, some of the people approach it as, "Oh, how can I break this?" Oh. And they don't actually view it as, "Oh, how can I adventure here?" And so we actually had a player who says, "All right, I'm going to be a flying monkey, and I'm just going to try to escape every way I can." And um, uh, I doubt that in real life that uh, uh, that a player is going to approach it that way. But, you know, this is an edge case that um, actually helped us make a better game. You came back with some interesting concepts on how to address rascally players. Um, and I thought that it was pretty ingenious about what, what you came up with. I think probably it's kind of a blind spot I have. I, I am pretty good at breaking software um, by thinking like this, this player you're just talking about. But... Um, I didn't really, you know, I'm like, oh, this is my creative thing. And I didn't really, I didn't really try and tear it apart, um, at least in the first iteration. Right. So, so you got all these kind of situations that I'd kind of left open. So, well, last piece, I really wanted to tuck on this because surely that everybody's going to run out and back this Kickstarter. This is a realistic peep for people that are doing Kickstarters. I wanted to say something right now that some of the work that we're doing of saying this is a stretch goal and this is a stretch goal. The truth is we are still writing it as people came back and said, gosh, we really want to play talking animals. We all looked at each other and said, well, we talked about it. We weren't sure how much interest there would be. Good God, everybody wants to play Toto. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So this is... And art is not fast either. We have, I think, some of the most amazing artists. I love the work Aja does and Preo and all of the others that are working so hard on this. Art is not something that comes overnight either. So our launch time is not a full year away, but it's it's a good nine months away. And part of that is making sure that we write it, we test it. We have extremely pedantic people come through and and poop all over it. We clean up the mess and remove it again. But it's a process. And all of the new things we're looking at, we said, if we did nothing else, we've got a good product. But now we can go back and do more that we were talking about. And what what else is that process? What do you think they should know about, David? 
like you said, um, the, the wonderful thing about there's some bad things, but the wonderful thing about crowdfunding campaigns is that the backers that they pledge, um, which is a leap of faith on their part. But it, as part of that, they get a sense of ownership because if it wasn't for them, that this wouldn't happen. And for us, the way that I've been trying to approach it is that this gives us a resource of partners that we can work with, who can help us point test, who can help us brainstorm, because they're on our side and they want to make this project the best possible. It can be frustrating when their viewpoints do not match up with our assumptions, but that kind of challenge is sparking us um, to be uh, more creative than we want to be some days. It also uh, reveals things that we didn't think of on our own, which is actually a godsend because it's helping us avoid future problems. On the other hand, because this is, there's a lot of what ifs and uh, we're relying on a bunch of other people to actually help us produce these things for manufacturers and the shippers, there are inevitably going to things, be things that disappoint our backers or just hiccups, software hiccups with how Kickstarter works. Sometimes we can send out the wrong message by accident. <laughs> and so, um, so that kind of embarrassment um, happen, but um, hopefully and mostly the Kickstarter community has been very forgiving and very understanding of the hiccups because we're developing this game together, which I think is really good. Yeah, we had, I would say we had a good over 500 pages before we ever, of just text of things that we'd written before we, we even started this. So we were, we were ready saying, if nobody wants to change anything, here's where we go. But I love the input that people have gotten, what people have asked for. There's Oz is very popular. I mean, I loved The Wiz. What a great movie. That was my first time I ever saw Michael Jackson. Even if I haven't loved some of the TV series, I love the idea and feel of Oz. And every time it takes me back there, it makes me happy. Well, one of the hard truths about Oz is that there are dozens of books out there. There are 14 original books that Baum wrote before he died. And then um, a couple of people have officially taken off. But once it became public domain in the 70s, Everybody started dabbling in Oz. You have The Wiz. You had a couple other, um, which was uh, uh, the urban Black community's take on the story. Then you had a bunch of other people who decided to play in it. And a lot of people went dark and they went very adult, capital A, R-rated adult or worse, And uh, which is great if you're into that. But I don't think that um, that's what we were going for. We were more going for the original feel. But even then, with, if we only focus on the 14 books, that's way too much stuff for us to fit into two uh, RPG source books. So we very quickly realized, Jeannie, Aaron, and I, that there's too much here for us to put into this project. So we have to edit it down to what is useful. And we and then I know I've been doing this, and Aaron and Jeannie have also been doing this, is that we've been bookmarking things to do for future expansions because we're pretty sure other people are going are, are yeah. to want more of Oz. I think I, I kind of hope that some of my fellow fiction writers out there look at this and say, you know, I hadn't thought about writing a story in Oz, but my goodness, there's so many stories to be told. And whether that's being told by a writer in a short story, a novel or a game master or even somebody just playing with their kids. That's what I hope that we're bringing is the world of Oz is alive for storytelling. And that's why I'm so excited about being part of this project. You know, I almost wanted to create a shared universe for writers and um, creative types and have like a website that kept like a concordance and canonical things that people can use to reference, kind of like what they used to do with Thieves World back in the 70s and 80s. I was thinking of, I was thinking 
that might be something to um, explore in the future. Could be. Well, we will put links to the Kickstarter and some of the art and pieces out there, which we mentioned on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we answer email. The guys at Double Critical love email if you ever want to uh, send them questions too. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for being with me today. Thank you. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Lingberg. You can hear more from Michael Lingberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs and Double Critical. You can buy cool WDC and Double Critical swag. And hey out there, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.